Article 2. Free Will. Status Controversiae. The Principal Question in this Controversy. Since the will of man is found in four unlike states, namely 1. Before the fall, 2. Since the fall, 3. After regeneration, 4. After the resurrection of the body, the chief question is only concerning the will and ability of man in the second state, namely what powers in spiritual things he has of himself after the fall of our first parents and before regeneration, and whether he is able by his own powers, prior to and before his regeneration by God's Spirit, to dispose and prepare himself for God's grace, and to accept, or not, the grace offered through the Holy Ghost in the Word and Holy Sacraments. Affirmative Theses, the Pure Doctrine Concerning this Article According to God's Word 1. Concerning this subject, our doctrine, faith, and confession is that in spiritual things the understanding and reason of man are blind, and by their own powers understand nothing, as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, Neither can he know them when he is examined concerning spiritual things. 2. Likewise, we believe, teach, and confess that the unregenerate will of man is not only turned away from God, but also has become an enemy of God, so that it only has an inclination and desire for that which is evil and contrary to God, as it is written in Genesis 8.21, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Also Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Yea, as little as a dead body can quicken itself to bodily earthly life, so little can man, who by sin is spiritually dead, raise himself to spiritual life, as it is written Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything good as of ourselves, but that we are sufficient is of God. 3. God the Holy Ghost, however, does not effect conversion without means, but uses for this purpose the preaching and hearing of God's Word, as it is written Romans 1.16, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Also Romans 10.17, Faith cometh by hearing of the word of God. And it is God's will that his word should be heard, and that man's ears should not be closed. Psalm 95, 8. With this word the Holy Ghost is present and open hearts, so that they, as Lydia in Acts 16, 14, are attentive to it, and are thus converted alone through the grace and power of the Holy Ghost, whose work alone the conversion of man is. For without his grace... And if he do not grant the increase, our willing and running, our planting, sowing, and watering are all nothing. As Christ says, John 15, 5, Without me, you can do nothing. With these brief words, he denies to the free will its powers and ascribes everything to God's grace, in order that no one may boast before God. 1 Corinthians 1, 29, 2 Corinthians 12, 5, Jeremiah 9, 23. Negative Theses, Contrary False Doctrine Accordingly, 
we reject and condemn all the following errors as contrary to the standard of God's word. 1. The delirium of philosophers who are called Stoics, as also of the Manichaeans, who taught that everything that happens must so happen and cannot happen otherwise, and that everything that man does, even in outward things, he does by compulsion, and that he is coerced to evil works and deeds as in chastity, robbery, murder, theft, and the like. 2. We reject also the error of the gross Pelagians, who taught that man by his own powers, without the grace of the Holy Ghost, can turn himself to God, believe the gospel, be obedient from the heart to God's law, and thus merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 3. We reject also the error of the semi-Pelagians, who teach that man by his own powers can make a beginning of his conversion, but without the grace of the Holy Ghost cannot complete it. 4. Also, when it is taught that although man by his free will before regeneration is too weak to make a beginning, and by his own powers to turn himself to God, and from the heart to be obedient to God, yet if the Holy Ghost by the preaching of the word has made a beginning and therein offered his grace, then the will of man from its own natural powers can add something, though little and feebly, to this end, can help and cooperate, qualify and prepare itself for grace, and embrace and accept it, and believe the gospel. 5. Also that man, after he has been born again, can perfectly observe and completely fulfill God's law, and that this fulfilling is our righteousness before God, by which we merit eternal life. 6. Also we reject and condemn the error of the enthusiasts, who imagine that God without means, without the hearing of God's word, also without the use of the holy sacrament, draws men to himself, and enlightens, justifies, and saves them. Enthusiasts we call those who expect the heavenly illumination of the Spirit without the preaching of God's word. 7. Also that in conversion and regeneration, God entirely exterminates the substance and essence of the old Adam, and especially the rational soul, and in conversion and regeneration creates a new essence of the soul out of nothing. 8. Also, when the following expressions are used without explanation, namely, that the will of man before, in, and, convert, and after conversion resists the Holy Ghost, and that the Holy Ghost is given to those who resist him intentionally and persistently. For, as Augustine says, in conversion, God makes willing persons out of the unwilling and dwells in the willing. As to the expressions of the ancient and modern teachers of the church, when it is said, Deus trahit, sed volentem trahit, that is, God draws, but he draws the willing. Likewise, hominis voluntas in conversione non es otiosa, sed agit aliquid, that is, in conversion the will of man is not idle but also effects something. We maintain that inasmuch as these expressions have been introduced for confirming the powers of the natural free will in man's conversion against the doctrine of God's grace, they do not conform to the form of sound doctrine, and therefore when we speak of conversion to God, justly ought to be avoided. But on the other hand, it is correctly said that in conversion God, 
through the drawing of the Holy Ghost, makes out of stubborn and unwilling men willing ones, and that after such conversion in the daily exercise of repentance, the regenerate will of man is not idle, but also cooperates in all the works of the Holy Ghost, which he performs through us. 9. Also what Dr. Luther has written, namely that, in, that man's will in his conversion is pure passive, that is, that it does nothing whatever, is to be understood respectu divinae gratiae in accendendis novis motibus, that is, when God's Spirit, through the word heard or the use of the holy sacraments, lays hold upon man's will and works the new birth and conversion. For when the Holy Ghost has wrought and accomplished this, and man's will has been changed and renewed by his divine power and working alone, then the new will of man is an instrument and organ of God the Holy Ghost, so that he not only accepts grace, but also cooperates with the Holy Ghost in the works which follow. Therefore, before the conversion of man, there are only two efficient causes, namely, the Holy Ghost and the Word of God, as the instrument of the Holy Ghost, by which he works conversion. This word man is to hear, however it is not by his own powers, but only through the grace and working of the Holy Ghost that he can yield faith to it and accept it. Article 3. The Righteousness of Faith Before God Status Controversiae The Principal Question in This Controversy Since it is unanimously confessed in our churches, in accordance with God's word and the sense of the Augsburg Confession, that we poor sinners are justified before God and saved alone by faith in Christ, and thus Christ alone is our righteousness, who is true God and man, because in him the divine and human natures are personally united with one another. Jeremiah 23, 6, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The question has arisen. According to which nature is Christ our righteousness? And thus, two contrary errors have arisen in some churches. For the one side has held that Christ, according to his divinity alone, is our righteousness, if he dwell in us by faith. Contrasted with this divinity dwelling in us by faith, the sins of all men must be regarded as a drop of water compared to the great ocean. Others, on the contrary, have held that Christ is our righteousness before God, according to the human nature alone. Affirmative Theses Pure Doctrine of the Christian Churches Against Both Errors Just Mentioned 1. Against both the errors just recounted, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that Christ is our righteousness neither according to the divine nature alone nor according to the human nature alone, but that it is the entire Christ according to both natures in his obedience alone, which as God and man he rendered to the Father even unto death, and thereby merited for us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, as it is written, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.19 2. Accordingly, we believe, teach, and confess that our righteousness before God is this very thing, that God forgives us our sins out of pure grace, without any work, merit, or worthiness of ours preceding, present, or following. 
that he presents and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ's obedience, on account of which righteousness we are received into grace by God and regarded as righteous. 3. We believe, teach, and confess that faith alone is the means and instrument whereby we, we lay hold of Christ, and thus in Christ of that righteousness which avails before God, for whose sake this faith is imputed to us for righteousness. Romans 4, 5. 4. We believe, teach, and confess that this faith is not a bare knowledge of the history of Christ, but such a gift of God by which we come to the right knowledge of Christ as our Redeemer in the word of the gospel, and trust in him that for the sake of his obedience alone we have by grace the forgiveness of sins, are regarded as holy and righteous before God the Father, and eternally saved. 5. We believe, teach, and confess that according to the usage of Holy Scripture, the word justify means in this article to absolve, that is, to declare free from sins, Proverbs 17.15, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the righteous, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Also Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And when in place of this the words regeneratio and vivificatio, that is, regeneration and vivification, are employed, as in the Apology, this is done in the same sense. By these terms, in other places, the renewal of man is understood and distinguished from justification by faith. 6. We believe, teach, and confess also that notwithstanding the fact that many weaknesses and defects cling to the true believers and truly regenerate, even to the grave, still they must not on that account doubt either their righteousness, which has been imputed to them by faith, or the salvation of their souls, but must regard it as certain that for Christ's sake, according to the promise and word of the Holy Gospel, they have a gracious God. 7. We believe, teach, and confess that for the preservation of the pure doctrine concerning the righteousness of faith before God, it is necessary to urge with special diligence the particuli exclusivi, that is, the exclusive particles, that is, the following words of the Holy Apostle Paul, by which the merit of Christ is entirely separated from our works and the honor given to Christ alone, when the Holy Apostle Paul writes, of grace, without merit, without law, without works, not of works. All these words together mean as much as that we are justified and saved alone by faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.8, Romans 1.17, 3.24, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 11. 8. We believe, teach, and confess that although the contrition that proceeds and the good works that follow do not belong to the article of justification before God, yet one is not to imagine a faith of such a kind as can exist and abide with and alongside of a wicked intention to sin and to act against the conscience. But after man has been justified by faith, then a true living faith worketh by love, Galatians 5.6, so that thus good works always follow justifying faith and are surely found with it if it be true and living. For it is never alone, but always has with it love and hope. Antitheses, Contrary Doctrines Rejected 
Therefore, we reject and condemn all the following errors. One, that Christ is our righteousness according to his divine nature alone. Two, that Christ is our righteousness according to his human nature alone. Three, that in the sayings of the prophets and apostles, where the righteousness of faith is spoken of, the words justify and to be justified are not to signify declaring or being declared free from sins and obtaining the forgiveness of sins, but actually being made righteous before God because of love infused by the Holy Ghost, virtues, and the works following them. Four, that faith looks not only to the, to the obedience of Christ, but to his divine nature as it dwells and works in us, and that by this indwelling our sins are covered. Five, that faith is such a trust in the obedience of Christ as can exist and remain in a man even when he has no genuine repentance, in whom also no love follows, but who persists in sins against his conscience. Six, that not God himself, but only the gifts of God dwell in believers. Seven, that faith saves on this account, because by faith the renewal, which consists in love to God and one's neighbor, is begun in us. Eight, that faith has the first place in justification. Nevertheless, also renewal and love belong to our righteousness before God in such a manner that they are indeed not the chief cause of our righteousness, but that nevertheless our righteousness before God is not entire or perfect without this love and renewal. 9. That believers are justified before God and saved jointly by the imputed righteousness of Christ and by the new obedience begun in them, or in part by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but in part also by the new obedience begun in them. 10. That the promise of grace is made our own by faith in the heart, and by the confession which is made with the mouth and by other virtues. 11. That faith does not justify without good works, so that good works are necessarily required for righteousness, and without their presence man cannot be justified. 4. Good works. Status Controversiae The Principal Question in the Controversy Concerning Good Works Concerning the doctrine of good works, two divisions have arisen in some churches. First, some theologians have become divided because of the following expressions, where the one side wrote, good works are necessary for salvation, it is impossible to be saved without good works. Also, no one has ever been saved without good works, but, on the, other, but the other side, on the contrary, wrote, good works are injurious to salvation. Afterwards, a schism arose also between some theologians with respect to the two words necessary and free, since the one side contended that the word necessary should not be employed concerning the new obedience, which they say does not flow from necessity and coercion, but from a voluntary spirit. The other side insisted on the word necessary because, they say, this obedience is not at our option, but regenerate men are obliged to render this obedience. From this disputation concerning the terms, a controversy afterwards occurred concerning the subject itself, for the one side contended that among Christians the law should not be urged at all, but men should be exhorted to good works from the Holy Gospel alone. The other side contradicted this. Affirmative Theses Pure Doctrine of the Christian Churches Concerning This Controversy 
For the thorough statement and decision of this controversy, our doctrine, faith, and confession is 1. That good works certainly and without doubt follow true faith, if it is not a dead but a living faith, as fruits of a good tree. 2. We believe, teach, and confess also that good works should be entirely excluded, just as well in the question concerning salvation as in the article of justification before God, as the Apostle testifies with clear words when he writes as follows, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, Romans 4, 6. And again, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 3. We believe, teach, and confess also that all men, but, but those especially who are born again and renewed by the Holy Ghost, are bound to do good works. 4. In this sense, the words necessary, shall, and must are employed correctly and in a Christian manner also with respect to the regenerate, and in no way are contrary to the form of sound words and speech. 5. Nevertheless, by the words mentioned, necessitas, necessitas, necessarium, necessity, and necessary, if they be employed concerning the regenerate, not coercion, but only do obedience is to be understood, which the truly believing, so far as they are regenerate, render not from coercion or the driving of the law, but from a voluntary spirit, because they are no more under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.14.7.6.8.14 6. Accordingly, we also believe, teach, and confess that when it is said, the regenerate do good works from a free spirit, this is not to be understood as though it is at the option of the regenerate man to do or to forbear doing good when he wishes, and that he can nevertheless retain faith if he intentionally perseveres in sins. 7. Yet this is not to be understood otherwise than as the Lord Christ and his apostles themselves declare, namely regarding the liberated spirit, that it does not do this from fear of punishment like a servant, but from love of righteousness like children. Romans 8.15 8. Although this voluntariness in the elect children of God is not perfect, but burdened with great weakness, as St. Paul complains concerning himself, Romans 7.14-25, Galatians 5.17 9. Nevertheless, for the sake of the Lord Christ, the Lord does not impute this weakness to his elect. As it is written, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 10. We believe, teach, and confess also that not works maintain faith and salvation in us, but the Spirit of God alone through faith, of whose presence and indwelling good works are evidences. Negative Theses False Contrary Doctrine 1. Accordingly, we reject and condemn the following modes of speaking. When it is taught and written that good works are necessary to salvation, also that no one has ever been saved without good works, also that it is impossible to be saved without good works. 2. 
We reject and condemn as offensive and detrimental to Christian discipline the bare expression when it is said, good works are injurious to salvation. For especially in these last times, it is no less needful to admonish men to Christian discipline and good works, and to remind them how necessary it is that they exercise themselves in good works as a declaration of their faith and gratitude to God, than that the works be not mingled in the article of justification, because men may be damned by an Epicurean delusion concerning faith, as well as by papistic and Pharisaic confidence in their own works and merits. 3. We also reject and condemn the dogma that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Ghost are not lost by willful sin, but that the saints and elect retain the Holy Ghost even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist therein. 5. Law and Gospel Status Controversiae the principal question in this controversy. Whether the preaching of the Holy Gospel is properly not only a preaching of grace, which announces the forgiveness of sins, but also a preaching of repentance and reproof, rebuking unbelief, which they say, is rebuked not in the law, but alone through the Gospel. Affirmative Theses, Pure Doctrine of God's Word 1. We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between the law and the gospel is to be maintained in the church with great diligence as an especially brilliant light, by which, according to the admonition of St. Paul, the word of God is rightly divided. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a divine doctrine, which teaches what is right and pleasing to God, and reproves everything that is sin and contrary to God's will. 3. For this reason, then, everything that reproves sin is and belongs to the preaching of the law. 4. But the gospel is properly such a doctrine as teaches what man who has not observed the law, and therefore is condemned by it, is to believe, namely that Christ has expiated and made satisfaction for all sins, and has obtained and acquired for him, without any merit of his, forgiveness of sins, righteousness that avails before God, and eternal life. 5. But since the term gospel is not used in one and the same sense in the Holy Scriptures, on account of which this dissension originally arose, we believe, teach, and confess that if by the term gospel is understood the entire doctrine of Christ which he proposed in his ministry, as also did his apostles, it is correctly said and written that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But if the law and the gospel, likewise also Moses himself as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel, are contrasted with one another, we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a preaching of repentance or reproof, but properly nothing else than a preaching of consolation, and a joyful message which does not reprove or terrify, but comforts consciences against the terrors of the law points alone to the merit of Christ, and raises them up again by the lovely preaching of the grace and favor of God obtained through Christ's merit. 7. As to the revelation of sin, because the veil of Moses hangs before the eyes of all men, as long as they hear the bare preaching of the law, and nothing concerning Christ, and therefore do not learn from the law to perceive their sins aright, but either become presumptuous hypocrites, or as the Pharisees, or despair like Judas, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually, 
Matthew 5.21, Romans 7.14. And thus the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sinners. How great it is. By this means they are directed to the law, and then first learn from it to know aright their sins, a knowledge which Moses never could have forced out of them. Accordingly, although the preaching of the suffering and death of Christ, the Son of God, is an earnest and terrible proclamation and declaration of God's wrath, whereby men are first led into the law aright, after the veil of Moses has been removed from them, so that they, they first know aright how great things God and his law requires of us, none of which we can observe, and therefore are to seek all our righteousness in Christ. 8. Yet as long as all this, namely Christ's suffering death, proclaims God's wrath and terrifies man, it is still not properly the preaching of the gospel, but the preaching of Moses and the law, and therefore a foreign work of Christ, by which he arrives at his proper office, that is, to preach grace, console, and quicken, which is properly the preaching of the gospel. Negative Theses Contrary doctrine which is rejected. Accordingly, we reject and regard as incorrect and injurious the dogma that the gospel is properly a preaching of repentance or reproof, and not alone a preaching of grace. For thereby the gospel is again converted into a doctrine of the law, the merit of Christ and Holy Scripture are obscured, Christians robbed of true consolation, and the door is opened again to the papacy. Article 6. The Third Use of the Law Status Controversiae, the principal question in this controversy. Since the law was given to men for three reasons, first, that thereby outward discipline might be maintained against wild, disobedient men, secondly, that men thereby may be led to the knowledge of their sins, thirdly, that after they are regenerate, and the flesh notwithstanding cleaves to them, they might on this account have a fixed rule according to which they are to regulate and direct their whole life. A dissension has occurred between some few theologians concerning the third use of the law, namely, whether it is to be urged or not upon regenerate Christians. The one side has said yea, the other nay. Affirmative Theses, The True Christian Doctrine Concerning This Controversy 1. We believe, teach, and confess that although men truly believing in Christ and truly converted to God have been freed and exempted from the curse and coercion of the law, they nevertheless are not on this account without law, but have been redeemed by the Son of God in order that they should exercise themselves in it day and night. Psalm 119. For even our first parents before the fall did not live without law, who had the law of God written also into their hearts, because they were created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 2, 16, 3, 3. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be urged with diligence, not only upon the unbelieving and impenitent, but also upon true believers, who are truly converted, regenerate, and justified by faith. 3. For although they are regenerate and renewed in the spirit of their mind, yet in the present life this regeneration and renewal is not complete, 
but only begun, and believers are, by the spirit of their mind, in a constant struggle against the flesh, that is, against the corrupt nature and disposition which cleaves to us unto death. On account of this old Adam, which still inheres in the understanding, the will, and all the powers of man, it is needful that the law of the Lord always shine before them, in order that they may not from human devotion institute wanton and self-elected cults. Likewise, that the old Adam also may not employ his own will, but may be subdued against his will, not only by the admonition and threatening of the law, but also by punishments and blows, so that he may follow and surrender himself captive to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Romans 6.12, Galatians 6.14, Psalm 19.1, Hebrews 13.21, Hebrews 12.1. 4. Now, as regards the distinction between the works of the law and the fruits of the Spirit, we believe, teach, and confess that the works which are done according to the law are and are called works of the law as long as they are only extorted from man by urging the punishment and threatening of God's wrath. 5. Fruits of the Spirit, however, are the works which the Spirit of God who dwells in believers works through the regenerate, and which are done by believers so far as they are regenerate as though they knew of no command, threat, or reward. For in this manner the children of God live in the law and walk according to the law of God, which St. Paul in his epistles calls the law of Christ and the law of the mind. Romans 7.25, 8.7, Romans 8.2, Galatians 6.2. 6. Thus the law is and remains both to the penitent and impenitent, both to regenerate and unregenerate men, one and the same law, namely the immutable will of God and the difference so far as concerns obedience, is alone in man, inasmuch as one who is not yet regenerate does for the law out of constraint and unwillingly what it requires of him, as also the regenerate do according to the flesh. But the believer, so far as he is regenerate, does without constraint and with the willing spirit that which no threatenings of the law could ever extort from him. Negative Theses, False Contrary Doctrine Accordingly, we reject as a dogma an error injurious to and conflicting with Christian discipline and true godliness. The teaching that the law in the above-mentioned way and degree is not to be urged upon Christians and true believers, but only upon unbelievers, non-Christians, and the impenitent. Article 7, The Lord's Supper Although the Zwinglian teachers are not to be reckoned among the theologians who affiliate with the Augsburg Confession, as they separated from them at the very time when this confession was presented, nevertheless, since they are intruding themselves and are attempting under the name of this Christian confession to spread their error, we intend also to make a needful statement concerning this controversy. Status Controversiae Chief Controversy Between Our Doctrine and That of the Sacramentarians Regarding This Article Whether in the Holy Supper the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are truly and essentially present, are distributed with the bread and wine, and received by, with the mouth by all who use this sacrament, whether they be worthy or unworthy, godly or ungodly, believing or unbelieving. By the believing, for consolation and life, by the unbelieving, for judgment, 
The sacramentarians say no, we say yes. For the explanation of this controversy, it is to be noted in the beginning that there are two kinds of sacramentarians. Some are gross sacramentarians, who declare in plain Deutschen clear words, as they believe in their hearts, that in the Holy Supper nothing but bread and wine is present and distributed and received with the mouth. Others, however, are subtle sacramentarians, and the most injurious of all, who partly speak very speciously in our own words and pretend that they also believe a true presence of the true essential living body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper. However, that this occurs spiritually through faith. Nevertheless, they retain under these specious words precisely the former gross opinion, namely, that in the Holy Supper nothing is present and received with the mouth except bread and wine. For with them the word spiritually means nothing else than the Spirit of Christ or the power of the absent body of Christ and his merit, which is present. But the body of Christ is in no mode or way present, except only above in the highest heaven, to which we should elevate ourselves into heaven by the thoughts of our faith, and there, not at all, however, in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper, should seek this body and blood of Christ. Affirmative Theses Confession of the Pure Doctrine Concerning the Holy Supper Against the Sacramentarians 1. We believe, teach, and confess that in the Holy Supper the body and blood of Christ are truly and essentially present and are truly distributed and received with the bread and wine. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the words of the testament of Christ are not to be understood otherwise than, than as they read, according to the letter, so that the bread does not signify the absent body and the wine the absent blood of Christ, but that on account of the sacramental union they the bread and wine, are truly the body and blood of Christ. 3. Now as to the consecration, we believe, teach, and confess that no work of man or recitation of the minister produces this presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper, but that this is to be ascribed only and alone to the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. 4. But at the same time, we also believe, teach, and confess unanimously that in the use of the Holy Supper, the words of the institution of Christ should in no way be omitted, but should be publicly recited as it is written, 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing which we bless, etc. This blessing occurs through the recitation of the words of Christ. 5. The grounds, however, on which we stand against the sacramentarians in this matter are those which Dr. Luther has laid down in his large confession concerning the Lord's Supper. The first is this article of our Christian faith. Jesus Christ is true, essential, natural, perfect God and man in one person, undivided and inseparable. The second, that God's right hand is everywhere, at which Christ is placed in deed and in truth according to his human nature, and therefore being present rules and has in his hands and beneath his feet everything that is in heaven and on earth, where no man else nor angel but only the Son of Mary is placed, hence he can do this. Third, that God's word is not false and does not deceive. The fourth, that God has and knows of various modes of being in any place, 
and not only the one which philosophers call locales, local, or circumscribed. 6. We believe, teach, and confess that the body and blood of Christ are received with the bread and wine, not only spiritually by faith, but also orally, yet not in a Capernaitic, but in a supernatural heavenly mode because of the sacramental union, as the words of Christ clearly show when Christ gives direction to take, eat, and drink, as was also done by the apostles. For it is written, Mark 14.23, and they all drank of it. St. Paul likewise says, 1 Corinthians 10.16, The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That is, he who eats this bread eats the body of Christ, which also the, the chief ancient teachers of the church, Chrysostom, Cyprian, Leo I, Gregory, Ambrose, Augustine, unanimously testify. 7. We believe, teach, and confess that not only the true believers and the worthy, but also the unworthy and unbelievers receive the true body and blood of Christ. However, not for life and consolation, but for judgment and condemnation, if they are not converted and do not repent. 1 Corinthians 11.27-29 For although they thrust Christ from themselves as a Savior, yet they must admit Him even against their will as a strict judge, who is just as present also to exercise and render judgment upon impenitent guests as he is present to work life and consolation in the hearts of true believers and worthy guests. 8. We believe, teach, and confess also that there is only one kind of unworthy guests, namely, those who do not believe, concerning whom it is written John 3.18, He that believeth not is condemned already. And this judgment becomes greater and more grievous, being aggravated by the unworthy use of the Holy Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.29. 9. We believe, teach, and confess that no true believer, as long as he retains living faith, however weak he may be, receives the Holy Supper to his judgment, which was instituted especially for Christians weak in faith, yet penitent, for the consolation and strengthening of their weak faith. 10. We believe, teach, and confess that all the worthiness of the guests of this heavenly feast is and consists in the most holy obedience and perfect merit of Christ alone, which we appropriate to ourselves by true faith, and whereof we are assured by the sacrament, and not at all in our virtues or inward and outward preparations. Negative Theses Contrary Condemned Doctrines of the Sacramentarians on the other hand, we unanimously reject and condemn all the following erroneous articles, which are opposed and contrary to the doctrine presented above, the simple faith and the pure confession concerning the Lord's Supper. 1. The papistic transubstantiation, when it is taught in the papacy that in the Holy Supper the bread and wine lose their substance and natural essence and are thus annihilated, that they are changed into the body of Christ and the outward form alone remains. 2. The papistic sacrifice of the Mass for the sins of the living and the dead. 3. That the sacrilege whereby to laymen one form only of the sacrament is given, and contrary to the plain words of the testament of Christ, the cup is withheld from them, and they are thus deprived of his blood. 4. 
when it is taught that the words of the testament of Christ must not be understood or believed simply as they read, but that they are obscure expressions whose meaning must be sought first in other passages of Scripture. 5. That in the Holy Supper the body of Christ is not received orally with the bread, but that with the mouth only bread and wine are received, the body of Christ, however, only spiritually by faith. 6. That the bread and wine in the Holy Supper are nothing more than symbols or tokens by which Christians recognize one another. 7. That the bread and wine are only figures, similitudes, and representations of the far absent body and blood of Christ. 8. That the bread and wine are no more than a memorial, seal, and pledge, through which we are assured that when faith elevates itself to heaven, it there becomes partaker of the body and blood of Christ, as truly as we eat bread and drink wine in the supper. 9. That the assurance and confirmation of our faith in the Holy Supper occur through the external signs of bread and wine alone, and not through the true present body and blood of Christ. 10. That in the Holy Supper only the power, efficacy, and merit of the absent body and blood of Christ are distributed. 11. That the body of Christ is so enclosed in heaven that it can in no way be at once and at one time in many or all places upon earth where his Holy Supper is celebrated. 12. That Christ has not promised, neither could have effected, the essential presence of his body and blood in the Holy Supper because the nature and property of his assumed human nature cannot suffer nor permit it. 13. That God, according to all his omnipotence, which is dreadful to hear, is not able to cause his body to be essentially present in more than one place at one time. 14. That not the omnipotent words of Christ's testament, but faith, produces and makes the presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper. 15 that believers must not seek the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper, but raise their eyes from the bread to heaven and there seek the body of Christ. 16. That unbelieving, impenitent Christians do not receive the true body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper, but only bread and wine. 17. That the worthiness of the guests at this heavenly meal consists not alone in true faith in Christ, but also in the external preparation of men. 18. That even the true believers who have and retain a true, living, pure faith in Christ can receive this sacrament to their judgment, because they are still imperfect in their outward life. 19. That the external visible elements of the bread and wine should be adored in the Holy Sacrament. 20. Likewise, we consign also to the just judgment of God all presumptuous, frivolous, blasphemous questions which decently forbids to mention, and other expressions, which most blasphemously and with great offense to the church are proposed by the sacramentarians, in a gross, carnal, capernaitic way concerning the supernatural heavenly mysteries of this sacrament. 21. Hence we hereby utterly reject and condemn the capernaitic eating of the body of Christ, as though we taught that his flesh were rent with the teeth and digested like other food which the sacramentarians against the testimony of their conscience, after all our frequent protests, willfully force upon us, and in this way make our doctrine odious to their hearers. And on the other hand, we maintain and believe, according to the simple words of the testament of Christ, 
the true yet supernatural eating of the body of Christ, as also the drinking of his blood, which human senses and reason do not comprehend, but as in all other articles of faith, our reason is brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and this mystery is not apprehended otherwise than by faith alone and revealed in the word alone. 